Again, it is good to see you, and uh, just by way of introduction for the, the recording, my name is Matt Palladian. I'm one of the elders here, uh, and it is my joy and privilege to serve this body. I have been so blessed by the people of this church. My wife uh, and I have three kids. Many of you, your faces I recognize because you serve in the children's ministry, which has been one of the greatest blessings of, to our family, uh, and I'm so thankful to you. So special thankful, thank, thank you to those who are part of our children's ministry. I want to uh, just give you a little bit of background on why I picked this topic. Charity and Its Fruits is actually the name of a book that's ascribed to Jonathan Edwards. We'll talk a little bit about how it came to be. Uh, but there were a couple of things that, that kind of triggered me to make sure that I put this on the Sundays in July. First is, you may not notice this, but each Sunday we've had uh, one of our Sundays in July messages has had something to do with what I call the writing of a famous Christian dead guy. So R.C. Sproul last week from Austin, uh, there were a couple, uh, Phil Johnson did one the first Sunday. Uh, so we're actually creating a bit of a series within Sundays in July to talk about the writings of those who have gone before us. Not just a New York Times bestseller, but something that has really weathered the test of time. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, as we know, is an author of many works, and many of his works have indeed weathered the test of time. This one is a work that I didn't know about. Uh, and just a little bit of a background on how I came across Charity and Its Fruits. I was reading um, R.C. Sproul's, I have it right here, Growing in Holiness. Many of you may have this book. I would recommend, you're going to get a couple of book recommendations from me today. Uh, R.C. Sproul's Growing in Holiness is such a helpful and practical book, taking what we know about our friend in heaven, R.C. Sproul, and his deep affection for the Lord and, his, and modeling our lives after him. Uh, really a book that's designed to help us understand God's role and our role in sanctification. And there is a chapter in that book uh, called The Priority of Love. So it's just kind of working through the different things that it takes for a Christian to understand what God is doing and what they ought to do in order to breed sanctification in their lives. And so Sproul, in that chapter, wrote one of the, this is a quote, one of the greatest classics ever written about the virtue and fruit of spiritual love in the Christian life is by Jonathan Edwards. The book is entitled Charity and Its Fruits. If you've ever had the opportunity to read it, if you've never had a t t an opportunity to read it, find a copy of it and read it. It really is must-reading for all of us. And R.C. Sproul said that, but also a woman that I met here who's sitting in the front row also told me that when she walked in today. She said, I checked it out of a, of a library and I read it three times. Every Christian has to read this book. I thought, well, I've read some of Edwards. I've read his resolutions, which stand out as phenomenally wise, considering he wrote them as a teenager. And I've also read and heard preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is, at very least, convicting. But this book, Charity and Its Fruits, intrigued me for a couple of reasons. Not only do I respect our, our dear brother, R.C. Sproul, and would trust any of his book recommendations, uh, but also because many of my own spiritual mentors have talked to me about him and the impact that he and his writings have had on their lives as they explore what scripture has to say about the life of a Christian. And finally, what was probably the most intriguing to me was to find when I saw a synopsis of Charity and Its Fruits that this is essentially Jonathan Edwards' exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. Of course, that famous and often misunderstood chapter on love, the love chapter, as they call it. It comes up at almost every wedding. Um, I was, my wife and I were at a wedding on, on Friday evening, and sure enough, the, the scripture reading was 
the full chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Why do I say that 1 Corinthians 13 is misused or misunderstood? We can take probably an entire Sundays in July session just to explore the way that love is misrepresented, corrupted, even perverted these days. Consider the now popular phrase, love is love. It's like saying two equals two. It's obvious, but it's meant to say something more than something just obvious. Mainly, it's a claim from our society that you can allow love to be whatever you want it to be. And nobody should be able to offer a definition contrary to your own definition of what love is. So it's not only who you can love, which is where we see it on, on signs, but it's also how you can love. Maybe it's, it's loving to shut someone out of your life. Maybe that's your definition of love. Maybe the, 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 the idea is that tough love is what is the most important love. That's the serious kind of love. And the more open the terms, the better. If we can have a really open definition of love, then society can pack anything they want into that definition. And so it's this trend to walk around with a love is love t-shirt to signify that I have a right to define whatever love is. And any attempt to bring clarity to love, perhaps anchoring it in a definition of the Bible or what wise scholars have said for years, that's considered closed-minded or perhaps even worse, bigoted. It's a real struggle. Sorry, so is my microphone. Now here's what's interesting. Nearly 300 years ago, when Jonathan Edwards lived, he too noticed that tension. The tension between the world's definition of love and what the Bible says about love. And so, in 1738, he prepared a sermon series to his Northampton congregation, 15 sermons that he preached on 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm going to preach them all to you right now. <laughs> what I'm going to try to do is provide an overview. We're going to look at some themes of what came across from his study. Now, just a little history. The, the reason why uh, this is a, is a lesser-known work is that it wasn't until about 100 years after his death that Jonathan's great-grandson, Tyrone Edwards, published the, the sermons. So he took his great-grandfather's notes and actually put them and assembled them into something that could be published and read. So this wasn't actually a publication of Jonathan Edwards like some of the other works he did. It's a compilation. And so it was first made available in 1851. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to set the scene for these sermons. Talk a little bit about Jonathan Edwards' life and preaching. A lot of us know about uh, Jonathan Edwards, but sometimes we just need a refresher. Who was this man? Someone that they say is one of the most famous American theologians. And then, once we look at his life and the context of his life and when he was preaching, we'll take a look at that text in 1 Corinthians 13. And as we look at that, we'll offer some insights that Edwards highlighted through those 15 sermons. This is not meant to be a cliff notes of uh, Charity and Its Fruits. I would still commend it to you to read. It takes some time, at least for this guy who is not seminary trained. Uh, it took me a long time to work through Shakespeare and probably longer to work through Jonathan Edwards. And, uh, and, but it is so rich, so, so rich. So my hope is that this study, what we look at this morning, will ground us in what the Bible says about love. And then we'll take what a godly man who invested a lot of time in that study had to see in terms of themes from that. So first, let's talk about that man. Jonathan Edwards. I don't think that's his real hair. (laughs) 
but you can tell based on the look, the time that he was living in. He was born in 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut, and Connecticut, of all of the New England at the time, was, uh, of course, part of British America under the rule of, when he was born, Queen Anne, uh, and then ultimately Kings George I, George II, George III. It was George III that would have received the Declaration of Independence. So all of those, uh, that royalty reigned during Edward's life. Edwards came from a long line of pastors, uh, and so did his wife, actually. Uh, his father uh, was a pastor of a local congregation there in Connecticut. His grandfather was actually pretty famous. He was the Reverend Solomon Stoddard, and he, he pastored a fairly large, you might say, a kind of a megachurch of the day uh, with an influential voice throughout New, New England. And actually, Edwards would later fill that pulpit, so he took his grandfather's pastorate when he passed away. There were 11 Edward's children, but he was the only boy. So he had four older sisters and six younger ones. I had one sister, and that was enough. (laughs) Edward's and his sisters blasted through school. They did school together, uh, and academics were a huge priority in their household. And Jonathan actually found himself ready for college at the tender age of 13. And so he enrolled at what would later be known as Yale. He graduated uh, once it had been called that, but at the time it it didn't have a name, really. Uh, But he did graduate from Yale, which we still know to be a very uh, intellectual institution. And just another idea of timing, Ben Franklin was about the same age as Jonathan Edwards. They probably would have crossed paths. They would have read one another's works. Uh, Franklin, however, did not go to college. And if he had, he probably would have ended up in classes with Edwards. That would have been where he probably, just based on where he grew up and the people he knew. But as important as academics were to Edwards, his parents continually insisted that eternal destiny was more important than anything else he could learn. In fact, they made him so thoughtful about it that it was always on his mind. It's what triggered those resolutions that he wrote as a young man. And it really is the groundwork that led him to deeply explore who God is. It was a 16-year-old, Edwards, that found his heart was transformed by that exploration. One of his biographers writes this about his conversion to being a true follower of Christ. He says, God's sovereignty had been a problem for Edwards because he had been underestimating its awesome implications. Edwards now saw that the universe was essentially personal, an emanation of the love and beauty of God, so that everything, even inanimate matter, was a personal communication from God. In Edwards' words, I was overwhelmed by a sense quite different from anything I had ever experienced before, a sort of inward sweet delight in God. He was a real Christian. And everything that we read from him shows that he just loved the creator of the universe and the savior that he sent. So at 16, Edwards was saved from God's wrath. It didn't matter that he grew up in a pastor's household. It didn't matter that his grandpa was a famous preacher. He knew that he had to make a decision to be saved from God's wrath. And it was the Holy Spirit that would come in and give him a new heart, a completely different perspective, so that everything, you heard that quote, everything he looked at, inanimate objects even, were a sign of God's creation and love for his people. That is the heart of a Christian. That everything you look at, everything you touch, everything the sky to the earth and even below the earth is part of what God has for you. And it's with that understanding that he took years and years in a pulpit 
to explain that and explore that for his people. And it would be about 20 years after his conversion that he'd preach charity and its fruits to the people in Northampton, Massachusetts. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to kind of get ourselves into, so imagine you're there in Northampton, you're wearing something like that guy's wearing, so less comfortable maybe than you are now. You've got a Bible in your hands, and Edwards takes the pulpit, and he wants you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, we don't know if he was doing a whole exposition of 1 Corinthians or if this is just something the Lord laid on his heart and he decided to preach this chapter, Uh, but we know he did it sequentially. These 15 sermons were delivered essentially over the course of three to four months. Now, one of the things is that you have a Bible that's either an ESV or an NASB or whatever, or legacy, uh, any, whatever you've got in your hand. They would have had the King James Version, not the New King James, but the King James Version. And in this version, the word love, this kind of explains the title of, of, these, of these sermons, is actually translated to charity. Okay, so... That was the King James translation of, into English, of the word agape. Agape as it relates to, so that agape love as it relates to a human showing love to others or to God. There's that, so the original Greek would be agape. It was translated in this version to charity, and in our versions to love, they're synonyms. So you'll find it not only in 1 Corinthians 13 in that version of the Bible, but also in other famous passages like 1 Peter 5, greet one another with a kiss of, we would say love, this translation would say charity. Peace be with you all in Jesus Christ. So it was essentially used whenever the Greek word agape was used to express love from one person to another or from a person um, more or less to God. So just because we want to get into that moment, I'm going to read from the King James Version of 1 Corinthians 13. So you get the full effect of those English words that Edwards himself would have read and become captivated by. You can follow along in our more modern language. Uh, So let's let's look starting in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could move mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my good deeds to feed the poor and give And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but wherever and whatever, wherever there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But that which is perfect is come, and that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake like a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, even as I am also known. And now abideth faith, hope, Charity, these three, but that the greatest of these is charity. These are the very words of God 
that Edwards and his congregation would have read together. And I will not read from this version at all after this, because <laughs> I'm glad we don't say abideth anymore. Now, as we look uh, at this text, there are some themes that Edwards really emphasizes in his sermons. You see it coming up over and over again as it's in this compilation. And so we, we might do well to understand just a little bit of Edwards' theology. Not surprising, we'll find some similarities between what we think about the gospel and the, and the Bible and what he did. So just a couple of key points about Edwards' faith. First, he believed the Bible is trustworthy, reliable, and true. He was an academic, and he pointed everything in academia back to God's creation and what he knew to be true from the Bible. And because of that, he became the president of Princeton. That earned him the right to be the head of one of the foremost institutions in the country because, not because he was this incredible philosopher, but because he took God's word and applied it to everything that what there was in life, and it made perfect sense. The Bible, when you take it at its word, makes perfect sense, and he believed that. The second thing he believed is that God is sovereign, personal, and perfectly loving. You see especially the loving come out in this, but every biblical query from Edwards started with God. Everything came in reference to God. And this is such a cool thing when you're thinking about, he's my pastor. I know, just like we know our pastor's heart, right? He's always going to start with, what does the word of God say? Right? We know our pastor. They, his congregation would have known, Edward's congregation would have known, it always starts with, what did the Lord intend? He always talked about God's sovereignty. In an essay he wrote that was titled, The End for Which God Created the World, he argued that if we want to understand the universe, and this is when things were starting to really kind of develop about the dimensionality of the universe we live in, then we must understand first, not how big it is, not, we must understand first why God created it. If we want to understand completely the universe, we understand first why God created it. That's because Edward, Edwards understood what the Bible said, that described God as sovereign creator, and so his entire impression of the world around him and everything that was being developed, and this was a time when a lot was being explored and developed, started with, why did God do that? What did God intend? He saw God's glory, not human happiness, as his end in creation. And so you can see, even in these, in these sermons, that Edwards really wants us even, as his congregation today, to really understand that. The third thing that he really applies to the study is that every human needs both God and the Bible. And he was, he was troubled, as may, maybe some of us might be, about this idea of moral self-sufficiency. He actually member, m- mentions it quite a bit throughout this uh, collection of sermons. He essentially watched churches embrace messages that led Christians to think that their faith was ba- based on a moral cleanup, that, that they could show they were good Christians by just kind of cleaning up their lives or maybe even cleaning up the outside of their lives, right? The, the idea of a whitewashed tomb comes up sometimes in these, in these messages. Kind of a, yes, Jesus is important, but I'm going to clean up my life for him, and that's what I'm in charge of. And he just said, if we believe that original sin is completely disabling for any human, that there's nothing that we can do in order to achieve holiness... God must be the only means of salvation, and there's nothing that we can do. So he preached a series of sermons called Justification by Faith Alone. He preached these sermons, which which are dripping in God's love is what models the love for everybody else. It has to come from God. There's nothing that you offer. 
he did not believe that there was anything we bring to salvation except for sin. There's nothing we, believe, we bring. And so with these principles in mind, it's not surprising that Edward's teaching on 1 Corinthians 13 that we just read had very little to do with a feeling, with this idea of romantic love between people. Nothing. There is no mention of marriage at all in these sermons. The only maybe kind of hint at it is that in addition to your spouse, the rest of the people should receive your love. That that, that spouse is not special when it comes to what the teaching of 1 Corinthians 13 is. We are to love everyone. Sure, let it be an example in marriage. But if you only love your spouse and you hate the world, you didn't get the point. You lost it, you missed it. Paul had something else to say in writing 1 Corinthians. And I think he would have rebuffed the tradition of reading this love passage at weddings. Well, he was indeed a romantic, and there's a lot of publishings of his, his kind of love letters to his wife. He likely would have said that this passage is far more about God than the love between two people. And so that brings us to the first theme. The first theme that is all throughout these sermons is that God is the source of love. God is the source of love. So let's just turn briefly to 1 John 4. As he quotes, he basically is, is in many of his sermons, he's, he's riding the line between, is he preaching 1 Corinthians or is he preaching 1 John? And, uh, and, and, and it's, it's not surprising. So just a, a quick 1 John 4, 7, we'll look at, at what he quotes quite a bit. And I think this is a great corollary to what we learn in 1 Corinthians 13. So, the, so this is the God is love section of 1 John. Of course, that's, that's really John's point throughout this letter. Uh, so in verse 7, beloved, beloved, let us love one another, from, for love is from God. So first point that, that is emphasized over and over again, love is from God. Second point in verse 8, God is love at the end of verse 8 there. Then if you drop down to verse 9, love was made manifest in who? Jesus, in Christ. And so God is love. Love comes from him. And there's no better example than the love shown in Christ, in and through Christ, really. So what he wants to make sure of is we are grounding ourselves not in the love that we feel for one another, that the love that we, kind of, we have, these kind of warm, fuzzy feelings, but in the actual love, the source of love, that there is a God who created love because he is love, and that's where we find the most perfect example of love. Not in like, oh, there's a a really sweet couple. They love each other so well. That's not a perfect example because it always breaks down. And so Edwards wants it to be, he wants to preach a sermon, and I want us to see a study here today that says this is not a fleeting love. This is a love that comes from the creator of the universe. He is the source. There's a big point, and he emphasizes it over and over again. Here's a, let's go back, flip back to 1 Corinthians 13. This might be helpful. If we, if we say God is the source and the love really belongs to God, then we could look at the verses here and add a possessive term in front of love. So let's just try it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not God's love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not God's love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I have not love, God's love, I am nothing. Verse 4, God's love is patient and kind. Verse 7, God's love bears, believes, hopes, endures. Verse 8, God's 
love never ends. Doesn't that make more sense? If you're going to hear something like love never ends, doesn't it make more sense that it's God's love that never ends? My love is going to end. My love for all of you. I'm going to die. And, and, and my love will end. It's, it's fleeting because I am. And you are. Even if we love as unconditionally as we possibly can in, the, in this fleshly vessel, it still comes to an end. And once in a while, it, it stops. It pauses, right? I, I really I love you, but I don't really like you right now. It's fleeting. God's love doesn't do that. It endures, it believes, it bears. God's love is different. So let's not take that away from God. Let's, let's have a, an understanding that love cannot be created or manufactured by human ingenuity. We don't know how to define love in and of ourselves. We think we're so smart. But God is smarter. The love that's described here is supernatural. It's not worldly. It's otherworldly. And so this kind of love can only come from one source. If we're talking about a supernatural uh, love that we don't see an end to, we're talking about only God's love, an eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Consistent with Edward's overall approach to the Bible, Scripture is about God, not about you. And so this love is God's love, not yours. And it's teaching always points us to God. So actually, he spends a lot of time talking about how much we learn about God from this passage, how much we learn about God's patient love for us. Sure, he's patient. If he wasn't, then we wouldn't be here. His patience is everlasting. And so we see, if you, if you go, wow, God's love is patient and kind. God's love does not envy or boast. God's love is not arrogant or rude. You start learning about God, not yourself. And so in all 13 verses of 1 Corinthians, it really comes out that the sermons that are preached about this should point us to God. And in pointing us to God, perhaps pointing us to each other, sure, there's always an application. We'll talk a little bit about that. So that's the first theme, is God is the source of all love. The second is that God's love changes everything. And one might ask, so what do you mean by any, everything? Well, let's look at a few things, and we'll see that it actually does change everything. First, God's love changes how a believer loves. God's love changes how a believer loves. So Jonathan Edwards, there's a quote from him in one of his, his messages. The Spirit of God is a spirit of love. And when the former enters the soul, when the Spirit of God enters a soul, love also enters with it. True saving faith is distinguished by a change in your DNA, in the way that you love, the reason why you love, and how you express that love. We've heard it Sunday nights when we hear testimonies as people get baptized. We hear that they once loved themselves, and then all of a sudden, they love God. And they consider themselves less than they ever did. How does that happen? Well, the Spirit of God dwells within a man or woman, child, and teaches them God's love. It brings them to an understanding of what God's love means to them and how that should re be reflected in their lives. True saving faith is distinguished by how one loves, maybe more so than anything else. Edwards would argue that. Edwards would argue that true saving faith if you want to say, how do you know you're saved? People ask that a lot when I, in high school, high school ministry. Always get the question, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm going to heaven? How do you love? 
What is the source of your love? What is your love to God the Father? What does that look like? How is that expressed? Do you do things because you love the person you're doing them for in an, in an incredible way? Or do you do things because you love yourself and the response that you get for that action? It's really easy, actually, and, and, and Edwards truly believes that love is one of the most tangible things. We think it's ethereal. That's because society has told us love is love, and we don't have a definition for it. But when you define love, it's actually quite tangible. You can see it. It threads every Christian heart. And Paul writes about this, right? In, in Ephesians 4.23, he says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to, and when he's talking about salvation and the transformation of, of, a, of a life from uh, the old self to the new self, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to, be, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When a person is made new by Jesus... God's love transforms them completely. Believers love differently. And a God who loves them reveals himself to them to have a new understanding of who we are serving and why we are here. And so those actions that come out of the heart of a new believer are because Love changed that heart. God's love changed that heart. So when we go back to God's love changes everything, that's pretty much everything. You have a whole newness about you. Edward says, true virtue does not spring from self-love. I have this, I sometimes do this workout. This is a deviation. There's, there's this, I, so this workout person, instructor that I follow and at the end, he always says, self-love is never selfish. Okay. True or true does not spring from self-love or from any earth-bound altruism. It's not an exploration of you. It's not how are you feeling about you. It's not how do you define love that is going to get you to God's love. It is only God's spirit dwelling inside of you that actually changes your understanding, gives you the real definition, and helps you understand what's next. And so when, lo- when we say God's love changes everything, it truly does. And by the way, when we, so again on this point, Edward spends a lot of time, and I think this is really helpful, talking about even good deeds, right? So when we talk about, so sure, there are people who are nice in the world. Well, what about them? And there are people who are married to one another and they seem like they, they love each other. But that's not love? No, it's, it's not God's love. Because at the core of it, there's always something incentivizing them. There's something selfish, You all were not Christians once. You know that if you're going to be nice to someone, you expect something nice in return. What does the Bible say? Turn the other cheek. It's not about us. It's about reflecting God's love for us, and that's it. We're done. We don't don't follow that with an expectation that that will be done to us. We're done. God's love says it doesn't need to be returned. We just have an obligation, right? And so if you consider the text, particularly verses 1 through 3, you might see some mighty deeds being done. So even things that might happen in the church, there's good stuff going on in the church. There's good stuff going on in Corinth, according to Paul, right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... That's significant. Being able to speak other languages for the purpose of spreading the gospel, that's significant. It was happening before God's word was intact. It was happening in in the church there. But it's ineffective. See this? But have not love. 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Can anyone understand you if you're a noisy gong? No, but you're speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. So what's, what's going on there? God's love changes your deeds. If I have prophetic powers, and, and the translation here is interesting, it's not, it actually, the original doesn't say if I, it's Paul is saying, I have, he's talking about himself, I have prophetic powers. Not like anyone could, but more he does. He's saying I do, and I understand all the mysteries and knowledge, right? He's writing scripture, and I have all faith. I even have that faith. I believe in God. Enough that miracles would happen. We would remove mountains. So like, think of what these deeds are. This isn't just I'm, good at, I'm a good conversationalist and I help people feel good. This is like he's doing miracles. And then he says, but have not love, I am nothing. There is nothing. No one will notice his miracles without love. It's so significant. The third verse, just to reemphasize, we get three examples, right? If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What does one hope to gain if they're sacrificed for the gospel? Heaven. He says no. And Edwards would argue that too. There are a lot of Christians who don't make it. Jesus talked about it. I I don't know you. Depart from me, I don't know you, is what God the Father would say to someone who's just doing the things without a love for God. And so, Edward's point to his congregation, which was part, if you remember, the Great Awakening was going on at this time, is to say, love changes everything. And without love, you don't see anything. There's nothing to report. There's nothing to bring with you to heaven. It changes everything. The presence or absence of love is consequential. So, so it's not just in, in what your heart is doing, it's what your hands are doing that God's love affects. And finally, it's love changes the way you minister. So if we're going with everything, it's, it's what's in your heart, it's what your hands are doing, and it's what you're doing, your, the impact you're making on the world around you, particularly your church. And Edwards again comes up with this over and over again. You could see his shepherding of his flock in this, that you, you, you can remember in, in chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts and, and all the reasons why they're helpful to grow the body, to, to, to this young church is trying to understand its way, find its way in, in a pagan society, not unlike ours. And so Paul details his spiritual gifts, highlighting how helpful they are to the body. And then he says, but all these gifts... In verse 31 of chapter 12, you can see, he says, and I will show you a more excellent way. All of these gifts, everything that God is giving you, your spiritual maturity is trumped by love. It's it's made less. Any gifting that you have is made less when you think about what the impact of really understanding love is. God's love. And so these gifts or powers don't necessarily give evidence to salvation the way that love does. He ends this section, uh, I thought, I thought um, Edwards, ends, he ends a section of his, so he preached like two, three categories of sermons in this. And one of his, his sections, he highlights it as a significant um, and it becomes the, the premise of an entire kind of series within his sermons here, that God's love is a more excellent way of reflecting what happens when somebody is saved from hell. You might say that being able to love the way God's love is the most preeminent of all spiritual gifts. It is a spiritual gift because we don't naturally love the way that God does. We only do that when the Spirit teaches us how. I just think about my kids. 
if you have kids, they didn't come out knowing how to love the way God loved. They came out knowing how to love themselves and what they want. That's good and strong evidence to help us understand what we're like without the Spirit. It doesn't happen naturally. It's supernatural. And so it is. Love is a spiritual gift. And it's helpful to look at it that way because then you can see that it's evidence of true salvation. So here's an application for this. Have you seen God's love change everything in your life? Are you someone who reflects God's love in such a way that people you meet who don't know God can see God in you? That's what Edwards and what I want to communicate to you today. That if you can go somewhere and meet someone who doesn't know what you do on a Sunday morning, they will say, there is something different. And not for your own glory. Not because you want to be known as someone different, but because you want the God you know to be highlighted as different. You want his power and his love in your life to be put on display. That is more powerful than removing mountains. So if we're going to take 1 Corinthians 13 seriously, there is an evangelistic charge here. There is a component that says, don't just do this within the context of the church. Do this everywhere. Do this always. Because God is the source of all love, and that love changes everything, and you need to show it. And so that brings us to the third theme, which is love motivates the right behaviors. And that's really uh, his explanation of verses 4 through almost the end of the passage, but really particularly patient and kind, not envying and boasting, not arrogant or rude. We're starting to talk about not just the way that you think about God, the way that you love others, the way you think about others, but actually the way that you behave toward them. So love, God's love, is motivating the right behaviors, not because mom and dad always told you to say thank you, but because thankfulness is an expression of gratitude that God demonstrates throughout the Bible, not because you decided that it feels good when you go feed the homeless, but because God told you and God's love says that it is expressed best in when you feed orphans and widows. Give them a cloak. That's the motivation. God's love is motivating you. Not what you think is the right thing to do, but what God's love informs. And it's a combination of what he reveals to us in his word and what he reveals to you personally when the spirit fills your heart with a different motivation. So when we look at God motivating the right behaviors, we have to think about what is it that we are trying to, uh, what we were trying to, to inform when we, talk, when we interact with others. What sort of aroma, as Paul says to, to the, to the uh, I think, Ephesians or Colossians, the, the sweet, fragrant aroma of Christ that we leave, we leave with him, with them. What, what is that? Well, it's, it's that the behaviors of a believer, someone who loves God, the behaviors of, of a believer are going to set you apart. So Edwards was really trying to correct that morality of the day, that this religiosity is problematic. He wanted people to see because if, if there was any society, it was a society that was built off of the Puritan dogma, right? They'd come to the colonies, and, and the Puritans had said, we're going we're gonna to establish communities that are based on essentially morality. And, and they, had, they had good intentions. The Puritans were, were God-fearing people. But what always happens generation after generation is you lose that God-fearing, and you keep the legalism, Right? 
Welcome to Grace Community Church, by the way. A serious temptation when people are well taught. And the thing that, that remains, the thing that seems to kind of trigger something in us, is actually just following the rules. And so what, what, what Edward says, and he is really echoing Paul here, is say, careful, because God's love should motivate the right behaviors, not a desire to just follow the rules. This isn't just a rule following. And that's why there's nothing about rules in these verses. And so Edwards doesn't pull something out that's not there. He's just reflecting the text. It's patient and kind. That's not a rule. That's a way of life. It doesn't envy or boast. Once again, not a rule. It's what's going on in your heart. So that's, that's a contrast to, say, maybe the, the Ten Commandments that are very clear rules, right? Now we're seeing that what Paul is trying to inform, what Edwards is gleaning out is, do not create rules for yourself. Create a posture of love that, that informs your behavior. He said, uh, he doubled down, doubles down on this theology. Good deeds do not save a person. He p- kind of pulls that in a number of times. But good deeds are a reflection of salvation. So good deeds, we know, do not save a person. But a person cannot be divorced from good deeds if they say they are saved, right? And so working that tension, he says this, the most proper and conclusive evidence that salvation is real and sincere is its being effectual. Essentially, it has an effect. So again, the most proper and conclusive evidence that salvation is real and and sincere is that it has an effect. You can see it. It's not just in, in, in the way that you understand God and the world, but it's the way then that you project yourself within the world as a reflection of God. God's love is the evidence of true salvation. It's that call to action. So, Edwards challenges his people, I will challenge you today, as I have challenged you to say, has God changed everything in your life? Does that include the things you do, the things you say, the decisions you make? Does your ministry reflect a love for God and a love from God? Do you do ministry? Do you go and volunteer with Vacation Bible School? Because that's the least you could do for a God who showed that kind of love for you so that you could reflect it to others. Is that your motivation? Or is it because you like the t-shirts? <laughs> there are a lot of reasons we do ministry, let's be honest with ourselves. It feels good sometimes. There's no feel good. There's no feeling in this. God's love compels you. You become a slave to him. Slavery doesn't mean it always feels good. It means that it has a motivation that says, I know who's in charge of me. And it is my joy, my honor, my privilege to reflect that in my own life. So consider if your life reflects a love for God and from God in the way that you behave. So God is the source of all love. It changes everything. It motivates the right behaviors. And the final theme that is throughout what what Edwards does is that love is forever. And this this is really, it's verses 8 through 13, uh, but he actually, he, he starts with it even in, in his first sermon. Uh, but love is forever. And one of the things that, the reasons why he starts with, it, with this is because he wants to show that it's the only thing that remains when spiritual gifts go away, prophecies go away. There's some things that are going to fall away. Edwards was indeed a cessationist. Uh, he believed that things were needed during the first century, during the early church, and then those started to fall away. 
But there's a very important spiritual gift that remains, and that is love. And so when everything else starts to fade away, when there are spiritual gifts that will come to an end, maybe it's a flash in the pan, it's a one-time thing, love, as we read in in verse 8, never ends. Never ends. And never is a word that is used fairly infrequently in Scripture. Never is a very strong word because it eliminates all other options. There is nothing else. There are no other things to consider. Well, what about, there are no what abouts. There's no caveats to the word never. And so God's love is, here's the coolest thing, undefeated. If God's love never ends, it means that there is nothing that can be done to thwart it. It's good news. It's immovable. It's undistracted. And the reality is that, that other gifts or other things that God gives can be changed, can change over time. Even our own sanctification changes, Lord willing, over time. God's love does not Jonathan Edwards says this, divine love will remain throughout all eternity, but the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit will cease. And he isn't just taking a position on spiritual gifts of the 18th century. He's shepherding his people to understand that being able to love the way God's love is the greatest blessing the Holy Spirit can bestow on a believer. What remains will be found in heaven for all eternity. And he said again, another quote from, from his sermons here, heaven is a world of charity or love. The fountain of love is found in heaven. So not only is there a truth here that says love never ends, but the enduring component of love means that our understanding of God's love here prepares us for heaven. It gets us ready for the fountain that God's love creates that pours out to everyone who believes for all time, for all eternity. There is an eternal component to God's love that gets us ready for heaven. That's so cool to me. And was, my eyes were opened up to how much about heaven is hearkened in this passage. When I read through, Edwards was really preparing his people to understand what was awaiting them in eternity. And it goes back to God being the source of all love. And so, application, point again, don't divorce the, the love that you have for others and for God on earth from what's going to happen in the future, in, in eternity. Those aren't two separate lo- It's not like, oh, well, then we're going to love perfectly. God's love is the same. We manifest it differently in these human bodies versus our perfected bodies, sure. But it's not God's love that changes. It's us. We're going to be glorified. But his love, if we understand his love perfectly now, we'll understand what we will find in heaven. So just, just have an idea that this is an investment not only for here and now, but for then. And so that should compel us because we want to have our eyes focused on heaven. We want to be excited about what's to come and, and really understanding God's love that is, is what is the reason we worship him, right? God's love, and we will worship him for eternity. It is God's love. It is at the core of that. And so Edwards, actually, it's the one part. So it's hard. You don't know how excited he got, like you're reading his sermons, and I'm like, I'm sure he had some inflection of his voice, but I found them to be kind of dry. He has absolutely no personal stories, 15 sermons. There is nothing about him. So he was really focused on what the Bible said, great. He didn't really kind of bring people into his personal life, But if there's anything that I saw through these sermons where I think he got kind of excited, it's when he was talking about heaven. 
the forever part of God's love. So, God is the source of all love. It changes everything. It motivates the right behaviors, and it is forever. 20 years after Edwards preached these sermons, he was invited to become, as I mentioned before, president of the College of New Jersey, now called Princeton. Smallpox was spreading through the colonies at the time. Vaccines against the disease had well-known risks and were controversial. (laughs) 300 years later, Edwards always kept abreast of the latest scientific developments, and he had his household inoculated. Everyone else in the home was fine, but he contracted a secondary infection that eventually made it impossible for him to eat, and he died, March 22, 1758. It's interesting to think about what would have happened if he hadn't died at the age of 54. Ben Franklin lived to almost 90, and his successor at Princeton, the president that would secede him, uh, was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Kind of interesting to think, well, if Edwards, this pious man with a deep understanding of God's word, had been involved as a founding father, which he, he most likely would have been, how might that have changed the course of history? But he was taken. After he contributed to the Great Awakening, from all of his writings, you might say he had a lot more work to do, and he did think that, but appreciate what one author had to say about this finish. He writes, almost all of Edward's life, he had been preparing for this moment he had often preached to others about how they should be ready for death and righteous judgment at any minute. And he had disciplined himself with a regimen of devotion so that he would be prepared. In the weeks when he was wasting away, he must have wondered why God would take him when he had so much to do. But submission to the mysteries of God's love beyond human understanding is at the heart of his theology. When he knew that the end was near, he dedicated a message to be sent to Sarah, his wife, who was living in Stockbridge as they were moving to Princeton and had not yet gotten there. And he said, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. That's an understanding of God's love. Even in that final note to his wife, you can see a sense of resounding understanding of who God is, what he was made to be, and how he can best reflect God's love in every word and deed. It's a gift from God to have the life of a believer, to be saved from sin. And he knew that that gift would carry on forever and ever. I believe that his note in his final days reflects his study of 1 Corinthians 13 and the sermons that you can read about his heart for God's love and charity and its fruits. And I pray that that may also be our view of God's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is rich to study what happens when a man of God understands what you have to say in your word and then toils over it and preaches it and lives it with his whole life. We're humbled by the testimony of Jonathan Edwards. We don't exalt him, we exalt you. We know that the only reason why he was worth anything at all to us is because what you did in his life was supernatural, that you changed him. He would have been a pious academic, and you made him new. You, you, the author and perfecter of faith, 
You made him different. You changed him, and you promised that same change to anyone who believes. And I thank you, God, that we have such a clear example, not only from the testimony of his life, but from the testimony of your word written through the hands of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 and elsewhere, tells us not only just how we can feel good about love, but how that love is actually a reflection of who you are, your very character because you are love. What a joy, Lord, to study this and understand that love, the way the world defines it, is so shallow, and the way you define it is so deep. And we're not special people to be able to know that. We just get to know what you have for us. It's just cool. And we thank you, Lord. We just give you praise and glory. We thank you for this study. We thank you for these sermons, these Sundays in July that allow us to focus on some different things. I pray, God, that in the time remaining, the fellowship uh, that comes following would be enlightened by what we've heard this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.